0: Hi, Houston. In May, a former member of the Mexican Mafia hijacked a Texas prison bus on its way to Huntsville. Gonzalo Lopez was at large for three weeks until police shot and killed the convict in a standoff. But by then, it was already too late. Lopez had killed a Tomball resident and the man's four grandsons. That makes Lopez's prison escape one of the deadliest in U.S. history. Today, I am talking with Carrie Blakinger of The Marshall Project, arguably the best corrections reporter in the country. Along with investigative reporter John Tedesco of the Houston Chronicle, she's figured out what Texas prison officials haven't wanted us to know, what went wrong, and how it could go wrong again. It's Monday, December 12, 2022. I'm Lisa Gray, and this is CityCast Houston. A quick word before we really get rolling, There are swear words in this episode, so please take whatever measures you need to. Hey, Carrie. Hey, good seeing you again. Good to see you. Let's start with the true crime part of this story. (laughs) Who is Gonzalo Lopez and what was he doing on a prison bus on May 12th? Well, Gonzalo Lopez was a Texas prisoner. He had
1: a whole long ass laundry list of uh, convictions. Mm -hmm. Uh, including some violent ones and a history of escape and on may 12th he was on a you know they call it chain bus is what they call Uh their transport buses that the prison's flying for it he was on a chain bus run from uh, a prison a maximum security prison in gatesville to a medical prison in huntsville
0: what happens from there
1: so it seems that he'd probably been plotting this for a little while, or at least that's what he told some of the other prisoners on the bus as he was pulling off this escape. Mm-hmm. But he'd been on a number of different chain bus runs over the months prior to that. So he had a sense of what the actual security practices typically were and when searches were and were not happening. Mm-hmm. And on that day, according to a number of the guys on the bus that I talked to, the guys weren't searched before they got on the bus. So he was able to get on with two shanks. Typically, a high security prisoner like him would have Mm -hmm. been strip searched once by the guards on the unit as he was leaving the cell, then put in a holding area, and then strip searched again before getting put on the bus and also made to sit in a, what's called a BOSS chair. That's an acronym for like, that's the brand's acronym, but it's a Mm -hmm. body cavity scanning chair. And- Yeah, it. they've had them in corrections for a while, but they're kind of finicky and they often don't work. And in this case, they didn't even bother using it, whether or not it worked. But uh, he got on the bus without do- being fully stripped either time and without being made to sit on the boss chair. So he ended up getting on with two shanks. And uh, almost as soon as he got on, he started picking away at the tack welds around a square of the metal grating that separated the area where he was from the area where the driver mm-hmm. was. And then about 90 minutes in, he slithered up through the little hole in the grating and stabbed the driver, hijacked oh. the bus, uh, drove off with it with all the other inmates in the back, and then crashed it two or three miles down the road. Uh now, weren't
0: there other guards on the bus besides the driver?
1: So the way that Texas prison buses are set up, there's like two halves, basically. There's a higher security yes. section in the front for high security inmates like Lopez. There were, I think, seven people in the in the front section of the bus that day, and they have metal grating around their section. So they they have the lower security inmates in the back with their property, and they have one guard who's in the back there. Uh, And he has, you know, he has a pistol and a shotgun, I think. So you have the back guard and you have the guard at the wheel. It used to be that there would be a third guard who would have been sitting up in the front section with the higher security inmates and would have literally been next to Lopez had they had a third guard on that bus run. A third guard was required until 2015. And then, you know, in the first of many, just actually just sort of an ongoing staffing crisis at that point. They changed their policy. So they only needed two guards. Anecdotally a lot of the guys that I've talked to said that pre-pandemic it was still typically three guards that they were seeing on buses mm-hmm. but uh you know they've had even more severe staffing crisis and at this point it's been typically two that were on buses um you know at the time of this escape so context here is that the back guard probably couldn't really see what was going on at the very front of the bus because there's all these inmates and metal grating between him uh although it's not even clear if he was awake or paying attention or what
0: he was doing. Oh, man. So, like, Lopez has been, like, looking for gaps in prison transport, and it sounds like he had a million security gaps to pick from. Totally. Yes. So what is the backstory there? Why were there so many holes in this system? So, you know, the the statement that,
1: that TDC gave me was, uh-huh. you know, something like just saying that this was... uh I forget what their exact phrasing was that this, you know, this was staff complacency and failure to follow established policies. I mean, it is true that staff failed to follow established policies. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that blaming it entirely on staff complacency is, is really quite encapsulates the problems here. You know, they're really understaffed. And I think that during the pandemic Mm -hmm. um, security protocols slipped and then as they became just ridiculously understaffed the, the, you know they they slipped even more i mean the things i hear on a sort of day to day basis out of these units where you have you know areas where there's sometimes like no guard for an mm-hmm. entire wing whoa like they they are experiencing a severe staffing crisis even more than what is uh reflected in the numbers because the actual employment numbers obviously don't account for people who are out for prolonged periods of time or, you know, can't have contact with inmates or whatever. Wow. So, I mean, yes, it's it's some failure to follow policies, but it's also just a, a lack of bodies to do the most basic of tasks.
0: Aye, aye, aye. Okay. So our guy has hijacked the prison bus. He's driven away.
1: Yeah, he drives off. So huh? he... so. As he's hijacking the bus, yeah, he, you know, he he stabs the guard and the the driver, mm-hmm. and they end up getting in a fight, rolling out of the bus, and then the back guard notices what's going on as they're struggling. Lopez gets the front guard's gun, but do- can't oh. get it out of the holster. He just takes the whole yeah. gun belt, doesn't get the gun out of the holster because it's some you know security holster lock, okay. and he scrambles back on the bus and drives off. So both guards.
0: Are left behind or?
1: Yeah, the guards are left behind. One of them shoots out a back wheel with a shotgun Uh and the other one fires some shots with a pistol at the bus, but doesn't actually hit Lopez at all. So then, you know, he drives off like two, three miles and then crashes in a ditch and jumps out the window, which two other inmates described as being like a movie style, like Superman dive out the window. <laughs> uh-huh. And, uh, and he, he jumps out the window and he runs off, runs away across the field. The remarkable thing though, is that after the hijacking happened, there was uh-huh. a local police officer from Jewett, which is a small town of 800 people nearby. They have a, a police force with one salaried officer, which is the chief. Yeah. So, you know, a, a, a Jewett officer, Drives up, sees... The chief, the only one there. Presumably. Like, presumably. I mean... Okay. uh, All right. He did not confirm that he was there, but it is a one-man force and a Jewett Um, cop arrived. And we have, you know, there's video of, of a Jewett car there. So he happens to be driving by... Happens to be driving by, sees the guards, asks them what's up, they tell him, and he goes after the bus. And then when the bus actually crashes and Lopez jumps out and runs away... He did not uh, fire at him, and he did not chase after him. The cop did not the cop did fire not. or chase, knowing what he knew. Right. Wow. You know, and I mean, honestly, though, regardless of what he knew, I mean, it, it is a man in a Texas prison uniform running away across a field. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing that was kind of remarkable, and I don't know the details of how this happened, uh-huh. is is that... After the crash happened and, you know, the cops there and then the Leon County Sheriff's Office shows up, you know, they've got the two guards over to the bus by that point and they didn't know who escaped. The inmates have like little uh, what's called a travel card. It's like an ID card for the, you know, for the transport process. They, uh, you know, handed the the first detective that showed up a travel card for another inmate and said, we think this is a guy that escaped. (laughs) And it took them more than an hour to correctly identify Lopez as the guy that escaped. And it's just really remarkable because like the other also wild thing about it is that the person they initially incorrectly ID'd as the, uh, as the fleeing inmate was a man named Michael Wages, who is extremely visually impaired, like almost <laughs> blind. So like not, not like good escape material. Also, he's right. like a, a skinny white guy and Lopez was like a small Mexican guy with many tattoos. Like they look quite different. Wow. And, and it's funny when I asked TDCJ for comment on that, they, they weren't aware of it because I would assume the guards did not later admit to their own agency that that happened. And it only came up in the Leon County Sheriff's Office report because that detective noted that they misidentified this inmate for, you know, more than an hour incidentally the inmate that they misidentified him Mm -hmm. as michael wages was one who was very willing to interview and talk to me and i went out and visited him at hughes unit which is you know where the whole where the bus ride started that day and he was a really great interview, and he was one of the guys who was able to give me a pretty thorough narrative of what happened that day but another thing that was of interest when i went and visited hughes unit Mm -hmm. so i interviewed him and another man there yeah. In early October, I think. Yeah. So several months after the escape, new security protocols had been issued. I went in and I was not searched at all. Wow. Oh. I literally could have walked in there with a gun and it was so wild because like I mean, of course, I went in as media, but it's crazy cuz like they still search media. Yeah. I, I've never ever gone to a prison in Texas and not right. been searched in some small capacity. Like, even, like, they usually, when I go to death row, Mm -hmm. they open your trunk. They don't really do, like, a thorough search. They just make sure there's no, like, human in there, you know. (laughs) And then, you have to go through a metal detector, just like the airport. You have to take off your shoes. You have to put all your shit on an x-ray belt. And there was none of that at Hughes. And it was just so wild, because I was like, I mean, okay, maybe you figure, I'm media, I'm coming in with the spokesman, I'm not going to do anything, but, like, I could have accidentally had a cell phone or some shit. Like,
0: well, also your media. Why not at least put on the show? It seems
1: like you could have, like, yeah, just like pretended. It was wild to me. I was like, wow, this would make it into the story if it weren't for the fact that I have so much other damning material that there's no space.
0: Oh my God. All right. So let's get back to the escape itself. Like, I remember, you know, seeing the TV footage of this crazy, enormous manhunt. The helicopters with the thermal imaging and every law enforcement agency I could name. But it wasn't until like May 31st, like weeks and weeks later that they appeared to pick up his trail near Centerville. It was so wild. I
1: got a much more thorough description of the search than I actually was able to include in the story. But Uh they had like searches that were elbow to elbow, combing the woods, like Fifty guards wide. Apparently, wow. they had guards around a seven-mile search area. They had them stationed in chairs every fifty yards. Like they swept the area repeatedly. It's really mm-hmm. wild. Not only they didn't find him, but they apparently didn't ever actually identify where he'd been holed up. Like they never found a hiding spot with like water or whatever. But the first day, uh-huh. there was a call over the radios. Um, and this came from someone who was involved in the investigation. There was a call over the radios for something like shots fired or man down, something to that effect. And that hadn't happened. And they later realized it was probably that someone had dropped wow. the radio and Lopez had picked it up and, you know, was just trying to test if it worked or not. <laughs> but other than that, they didn't hear from him until, you know, there was signs of a burglary on May 31st. There was a break in mm-hmm. in Centerville in, in a home there halfway between houston and dallas yeah yes and right the, where the escape had occurred this is where yeah. the hijacking had occurred mm-hmm. and i think a lot of people assumed he was in mexico by then you know like people assumed he fled but yeah you know authorities when i would ask at that time would say no we still think he's around but i think you know they they did sort of Resume, like they opened some of the roads and I think a lot of the locals assumed he wasn't around. They weren't
0: telling the locals, stay on the lookout, be really careful.
1: Well, they told them in the beginning and they sort of didn't really reiterate, no, seriously, continue to be careful. And then there was this burglary May 31st and they did not alert the public to that at the time. Even though, you know, there's been signs... The police did not say, we believe this is the escapee. Correct. He's highly dangerous. Correct. They reco- they recovered DNA from the scene, and it did take two days to test it, so they didn't uh-huh. identify that it was definitely him until the day of the murders. But the two days before, when this burglary happened, like, you know, there were indications. There was somebody who had, had taken a shower. Somebody had stolen a bunch of, like, water and soda and a jacket. Like, there, this was a burglary that, you know, it made sense to maybe raise suspicions was Lopez again. Yeah. Um, and they didn't, you know, sort of re-notify anyone, please be vigilant. So then on, uh, June 2nd, they, uh, is, is when they ended up finding the bodies of, um, you know, this Tomball grandfather and his, uh, oh, and, and four of his grandsons. Oh man. When they found them, uh, Lopez had already headed towards San Antonio, and it ended up being a animal control officer in, I think, Atascosa County, mm-hmm. who spotted the, him in a truck that he'd stolen from that house.
0: Yeah. So, like, so they believe that Lopez killed Mark Collins, that grandfather, and yes. the four boys. Yes. Everyone believes that Lopez killed them. There's no doubt. Yeah. Yes. There hasn't, there's not,
1: there's not been any reason to call that into question. Yeah.
0: Which is just awful. And it's only after that, that police shot and killed Lopez in Jordanton, south of San Antonio.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special
0: What is the upshot of all this? Has the state changed anything? Or are we still in danger of yeah the state has changed some things one of the things
1: mm-hmm. that has sort of driven me crazy about this personally yeah is i keep hearing from prisoners that all of the ways in which this has made their lives shittier um yeah. in which they've you know enacted like new security protocols that actually often don't in any way address the problems that led to this escape so, for instance, you know, I mean, first of all, they locked all the units down and everyone was in, you know, locked in their cells for weeks afterwards, which is, you know, not mm-hmm. great. But that's right. because they had so many guards searching for the guy, futilely searching for the guy, because they obviously did not actually contribute to finding him in the end. Yeah. Um. But then, you know, like, high security prisoners aren't allowed to own boots anymore. Like, oh. that that was not the fucking problem. Yeah. The boots was not the problem. And also, honestly, if your agency thinks that, Boots are the difference between someone escaping and someone not escaping. You have much bigger security problems you should fucking deal with.
0: <laughs> so do we have three guards on high security transport now again? Yes. They okay. also said that they were going to
1: put cameras in all of the buses. Uh Although seven months later, they've so far put in two. Um, <laughs> so... So, which, I mean, they said they have an RFP out and they're going to get a bidder and, you know, they're going to add cameras to to more buses. Yeah. Um, But I, I think this also actually hints at another thing. I think a lot of people don't know how much area, how much, like, how many spots in prisons are not on camera. Like, you would assume everything in a prison is on camera. Yeah. It's not, especially not in Texas. There's a lot of fucking prisons and they're big and there's just a lot of them don't have many functional cameras. So, so buses were certainly not going to be high on the list, but you know, they, they're working on that, but you know, they've also said prisoners can't bring their property with them on transport that had nothing to do with how he escaped. And it actually makes their lives surprisingly miserable. If you go to, if you get transferred to a new unit and Mm -hmm. you can't bring your property with you, that means that you go to a new unit with one pair of underwear one bra, the clothes on your body. And I think mm-hmm. you can bring like toothpaste and soap and yeah. like, that's it. And then for weeks until they ship the rest of your property, you have one pair of underwear. You have like nothing. Yeah. You just, you, you don't have coffee. You don't have Tylenol. You don't have paper. You don't have books. You know, you're wearing the same dirty clothes like day after day. And this is just not responsive to what actually caused the escape. And it's wild to me that these were staff errors. And yet, you know, they have managed to figure out a way to make all prisoners lives worse, not just like some select subset, but like all of them. And uh, it's just, it's actually not, it doesn't do anything to decrease the odds of an escape. There are plenty of things they are doing that that would be, responsive to some of these security issues. But it, it's it's just extraordinary to me, honestly, that TDCJ has not come under more criticism for this because this is one of the deadliest prison escapes in history in the US. I actually I, I'm yeah. sure there's probably some that have been deadlier. I was not able to find any. But you know, because this happened right between Uvalde and Roe, it mm-hmm. really did not capture the national spotlight, the way it might have. And also, be frankly, because we're in Texas. So if the same thing had happened in New York, it would have gotten a ton more media coverage. And it's wild to me that, you know, the agency has not come under a lot more fire for this than it has. And as much as I found about the security flaws that led to this, I think there's probably a whole lot more fuck ups that I didn't get to. Was the back guard asleep? Like I don't I don't know that. A couple inmates said it, but I don't know mm-hmm. that, you know. Yeah. Uh, there's all sorts of other things that, you know, I, I think may have also potentially gone wrong that hopefully will come out either in the report T D C J is gonna release in the coming week or so, or, you know, in the course of discovery if the family sues, because as of now the family's lawyer's are talking about suing. And, you know, one other thing is that I think people would assume I think a lot of people have wrongly assumed that the other inmates would have liked this or been in favor of this escape or something. And there's a lot of these inmates that I've talked to that are pretty mad about it. There are a number of, of guys who are on that bus who are like, I would like to help the family if they sue. Wow. Like they are mad at the agency because, yeah. you know, it made their lives worse afterwards. But also right. like, I think they have some sense that like, you know, most of them don't want people to just get murdered you know they're in for drug charges they're in for
0: robbery their lives were in danger on that bus
1: some of them were terrified you know because they knew once the bus was hijacked and the dude was driving off with all of them they were all at risk of of getting killed yeah you know because the because that could have ended in a law enforcement standoff where multiple of them ended up getting shot and they were very well aware of that
0: wow well I am so glad you reported this story out. It really needed to be out there. So and thanks for talking to us. Thank you. I was so glad to do it. That was Carrie Blakinger of the Marshall Project. Now I am here with producer A.K. Al Moman. AK, what else is going on around Houston today? Hey Lisa. Have you ever been to Cafe
1: Louis? Well, it's been one of my favorite spots in Houston. I love Italian food, and when I heard that chef-owner duo Luciana, or the Louie in Cafe Louie, and Angelo Emiliani are rebranding the all-day restaurant to the dinner-only Louie's Italian-American, and they will be located in the plant at 3401 Harrisburg Suite G. This rebrand comes on the heels of the success of their Red Sauce Sunday pop-up dinners,
0: which were outselling Cafe Louie's own dinner service, I love Louise, so if you find yourself in East End looking for an old-school Italian meal, Louise Italian American will
1: be open Thursday through Monday, 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. I'm already planning my visit to the new spot, to be honest.
0: That's it for our show today. You can follow us on Instagram. We are at CityCastHouston. We'll be back tomorrow. Talk with you then. Writing them ahead of time is good.